Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. Welcome into another great episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. We're so excited to have you here. We're so excited about the guest that we have for you today. We're going to answer some really interesting questions. We are going to talk about what is comparative education. We'll talk a little bit about the sport of sailing, believe it or not, and how technical education is like sailing. We'll talk about a problem that I think every single technical educator would love to have, and that is what happens when an anonymous donor offers to give you $100 million to build out an amazing technical education facility. We'll learn about technical education in the state of Michigan. We are going to have a lot of fun today with our guest. He is the superintendent of the Kalamazoo Regional Educational Service Agency, commonly called KRESA. Dave Campbell, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure. So we have listeners from all over the country. I'm here at our studios in Wisconsin today. I know that you're over in the state of Michigan to the east of us. But listeners from all over who may not be completely familiar, Superintendent, with what Michigan's structure for technical education is all about and the related funding models for them. So for those that aren't familiar, what makes Michigan unique in the world of technical education? That's a good question. So Michigan is, the state is broken into 56 intermediate school districts, okay? They're generally about the size of a county, some bigger, some smaller. But uh, they're, they're educational service agency intermediate school districts intended to be kind of a go-between between the, the state department and then the local school districts. There's about 550 of the local school districts. So what we really are created for is to create economies of scale in the simplest form, because, uh, you know, career tech, as an example, special education being another example, are, can be very expensive. And you've got to pool your resources together. It's not every little high school can afford to have its own robotics lab and, and, and lab for health occupations and culinary arts lab and auto shop, all that. That's this is very expensive stuff. And so you try to pool your resources. And so Michigan decided in the early 60s to create these intermediate school districts and then give us the opportunity to ask for millages to fund career and technical education, special education. Here in Kalamazoo, we were able to secure a millage in 2019. And I know I said they created in the 60s. We, we failed a millage in the 60s and another in around 2005 or 2006. Career tech just did not have the level of focus and priority that it does now. You know, this is a university area. We've got our home of Western Michigan University, go Broncos. In Kalamazoo College, and and, uh, and and career tech just did not ha- hit the the priority in terms of something that the, the county wanted to fund. But uh, boy, as things have changed with the economy and the uh, increased value of marketable skills certificates and marketable associates degrees and marketable bachelor's degrees, the 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 idea of really increasing the number of of young people going into the career and technical education fields has really increased. And so, so you know, again, we get back to your question: is is these these intermediate school districts really can play a very large role? in providing a, a more well-rounded education to a lot of kids. And it's not just for kids wanting to go into career tech ed or what some people call vocational education, but we're, you know, we really aim a lot at the younger kids too, 
to help them see what they can be. There's an old phrase that it says something like this. It says, if you can't see it, you can't be it. If you can't see it, you can't be it. And so picture if you're a child raised in poverty, whether it's an urban poverty or a rural poverty, there's similarities there. You're not oftentimes exposed to the kinds of jobs, the kinds of employment options that you'll have as, a, as an adult if you get yourself on a, on a good educational path. And, uh, and so we, we've invested substantial resources and, and we call them career consultants who are working uh, with teachers in elementary schools and middle schools to help kids see what they can be when they grow up. And so this is a, it's a very comprehensive redesign that we're in the middle of here. We're about four years into it, which is, seems like a long time. And it is a long time, but we're really trying to do a, a systemic approach to it, starting in the early grades and then finishing off a lot of work-based learning opportunities for kids in the form of, of apprenticeships and internships and those kinds of things. Because the research is just so clear that really your top performing systems of career tech ed in the world really do a lot of focus on the, the work-based learning, getting kids out into the workplace to be mentored and trained in, in, in the company's uh, culture and in, in expectations. I try to kind of go big picture here. There's a lot to that. We're all about big picture. If you can't see it, you can't be it. And so seeing the big picture is incredibly important to us here at the Tech Ed Podcast. And I think, Dave, you did a really, really nice job of queuing up some of the topics we'll be talking about as our time together continues, talking about work-based learning, talking about comparative education, learning from what's happening in other states and other countries, and, and really bringing together best practices in tech ed. And I know that that's a passion of yours and something you're particularly adept at. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed the reflections on this whole idea of economies of scale. How do we keep education local and decisions about education local and close to the individuals and the, the employers and the communities that are benefiting from it, but also understanding that in some cases we need to do this on a scale that a small community may not be able to do. And I think the structure that you just articulated really does, or at least sets up the opportunity to do a nice job of that. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the particular aspects of your regional educational service agency, again, commonly called the RISA. As you and I have talked, I know that you have an interesting group of constituents because your area, your RISA is comprised of both big urban communities and also rural districts. And so in as much as you're service, servicing both and serving both, what are the unique challenges in big urban districts? What are the challenges in rural districts? Well, you are right. We are a very diverse county. We've got about 35,000 kids, and there's there's uh, almost 13,000 of them uh, just in Kalamazoo Public Schools, which is primarily an urban district, and then in Climax Scott Schools, which is a, a couple of uh, very small towns, and that's rural, and it's the whole district has about 600 kids in it, and so you've got everything between between a, a smaller district of 600 to a larger district of 13,000 urban. And then, and then there's a, a suburban district as well. Portage would be considered uh, suburban. And so the, we've really got the cross-section of America. We've got uh, nearly 50 languages spoken in our larger high schools in the county. So that's a delicate balance. As far as the challenge in the urban area, it's the challenge of poverty is, I would say, the largest challenge. You've got a lot of kids that have not seen the different types of options available to them. Again, it's, if you can't see it, you can't be it. There is a real core theme. If kids kids haven't been exposed to different types of jobs, then how do they know? Same with same with rural too, though. I remember growing up in our household. My dad is I would consider the master of career awareness and exploration. 
meaning he helped his little kids see what they could be when they grow up. So when we went on vacation, we'd go to Southern Indiana, visit some uncles, and they had a meatpacking plant. We'd go to the meatpacking plant, and we'd watch them slaughter cows. And yep, we could work there. And when we went out east to visit my Aunt Nina, she was a professor at Dartmouth, and we went to her lab, and we saw her with her microscopes. And, and it was those kinds of experiences where my dad was always telling us, you can be whatever you want to be. And, and I just am so appreciative of that. And so when you think about it, how do you bring that type of experience that I was so blessed to have to 35,000 kids? Well, you, you can't really, but you can try. You know, the internet makes it a lot easier. We use a lot of technology. We interview a lot of different people in our community who've been very successful in various types of jobs, people of color, people that were raised in, in poverty, and we just interview them. And the interviews are online. And, and then we're, we're having kids, uh, you know, through their educational development plan process, you know, let's watch a video about this, watch a video about what a robotics technician does, watch a video about what a, a lab technician does in a hospital. So that's a big drive. The, the urban population is challenging is there's, you know, in their back way in the history of America, there, there were abuses of the educational system. And, uh, you know, you could read about this. There's a gentleman named Mark Tucker who has written some of the best literature, frankly, I think, ever written. He's, he studies comparative education. So he studied Canada. He studied Finland and Singapore and Switzerland from a career tech angle and just a straight academic angle. And he's got a, some interesting sections in there about, you know, back, you know, 100 years ago. Uh, there, there were schools that were kind of shoving, pushing children of color into, you know, what they call vocational education, just as a way to get cheap labor, increase the number of, you know, whatever program it was, the number of cooks or the number of auto workers. And it was used um, kind of almost to kind of manipulate wages to increase the supply, therefore reduces the demand, lowers wages. That has baggage. That has baggage and that can be controversial. And so we, you know, we're way beyond that now. Now the, you know, a lot of your best paying jobs really are in the technical fields. And so we engage heavily with our urban community and we also engage heavily with our rural community and really look at it with, with the more modern mindset, which we termed one, two, seven in our millage campaign back in 2019. Let me explain one, two, seven, because it really came, became the base of the campaign. And what the one stands for is for every one job, these are middle, middle class jobs or higher, by the way, for every one that requires a master's or PhD, there's two that require a bachelor's degree, and there's seven that require a marketable skills certificate or associate's degree. So during a presentation in January of 19, I remember asking the head of HR for our, our large healthcare system employs about 9,000 people in Southwest Michigan. I asked the head of HR in front of 90 people. I said, so Nikki, does 127 accurately reflect uh, Brunson healthcare? And she said, gosh, yes, it really does. For every one requiring a master's or PhD, it's two bachelor's and seven skills certificates and associate's degrees. And then I and I looked over at the head of Pfizer's HR department. Pfizer, of course, a very large manufacturer to which we're all grateful. And I said, Janet, is that true for, for Pfizer? And she said, oh my gosh, yeah, that's about our numbers too. And so that's the new economy. Is everything just kind of began to gear to that? If that's what the economy is saying, that to get into the middle class, it's one, two, seven, then we really need to be focusing more on those marketable skill certificates and, and associate degrees for a couple of reasons. And one, it's where the jobs are. It's where the money is. Two, it's a ticket to the middle class. 
Three, it also will diminish the college debt that, that kids experience. We have to be in a lifelong learning paradigm because things are changing at such rapid rates. Earning your diploma, that's a given now. That gives you that base academic skills and then working towards the marketable skills certificate and making them into the stackable credential type opportunity, earning an associate's degree. By the way, a lot of companies will fund your associate's degree. Many states even, we're getting closer to funding community colleges. Different states are taking different approaches on that. And then many companies will fund your bachelor's degree too. And since college is so expensive now, it's really important. Uh, Some of these, these developments as the educational system evolves along with the economy. It is going to be fascinating to watch that evolution over the course of the next several years. I think your your one two seven observation is spot on. You know, say, what that tells us is that seventy percent of the careers that we can use as avenues into middle class, upper middle class lifestyles don't require an advanced degree. And so you think about Governor Whitmer's uh, sixty by thirty effort, and sixty percent of the uh, adult aged individuals in the state of Michigan holding some post secondary credential by the year 2030, it really starts to point to the importance of those technical skills, the importance, as you mentioned, of lifelong learning, of understanding that our educational pathway doesn't certainly doesn't end with our high school diploma. In fact, in many ways, it's just beginning, especially as this technology continues to evolve over the course of time and finding creative ways to service both those urban school districts and students, the rural ones in ways that provide pipelines to every single one of them to these amazing careers that technical education can prepare them for. I think it kind of leads into the next question, which is in order to do that, we really have to think about how we disrupt the world of K-12. And I know in getting to know you, you're certainly not anybody who's uh, fearful of disruption. As you look at K-12 education, Dave, and and the future, what are some key ways, maybe two or three, that you think K-12 education needs to be disrupted as time goes on? Well, I'd say the first way is what we're doing. I think the career tech initiative is exceptionally important. That's not Dave Campbell. That's from global experts like a Mark Tucker that who I mentioned earlier. And career tech is, is a, a key component to systemic redesign. Notice we talked about what are we doing in the elementary schools? You've got to give kids hope. I would argue step one <laughs> in, in developing a child is they need to be loved and they need, they need to have hope. And if you can't see what you can be, how are you going to have any hope? Why should you study? Why should you pay attention to your education? It boils down to hope. And so hope comes from a lot of different sources. It comes from your parents, your families, your educators. Giving kids a reason to try, a reason to care, a reason to show up. And a lot of kids really like to work with their hands. And we send them to school where they're not working with their hands very often. And that's a shame. And it can extinguish a fire. Maybe there's a fire that likes to learn because have a natural hope and a natural, you know, curiosity about things, but we're having them sit and listen too much. Maybe we're having them read too much about things rather than having them work with things and engage with concepts. I remember I was a social studies teacher in Waukesha and then down in Illinois. And, you know, I was teaching kids how a bill becomes a law, right? Well, how are you going to teach it? And read about it in a book and then fill out a worksheet about how a bill becomes a law. Well, sure, that's a good start, maybe to build some basic knowledge. But if you think they're going to remember it, then you really don't understand the human brain. They're not going to remember it. They're going to remember it when you 
break the class into groups and you're the Senate Democrats, you're the Senate Republicans, you're the House Republicans, you're the House Democrats, and you begin to submit a bill and, and you take kids through it. They submit their own bills and they begin to work it through and you're using what you've learned. That's when real learning occurs. And so a more active, hands-on, whether you're learning science or or literature, social studies, making it come alive for kids. And it's hard to do. It's absolutely more work. It is much harder, harder to manage a group of kids that are debating bills, middle schoolers debating bills about, you know, killing harp seals or whatever topic they choose that interests them is way harder to manage than giving them a worksheet in a textbook. But we have to get that so they remember it. So that would be one substantial reform. And a lot of the top performing nations really do that. Other things that the top performing nations do is they create systems of teacher recruitment and retention that way surpass what we do here in the United States. Canada and, and you know the Finlands of the world and the Switzerlands, they develop a teaching force through very good HR practices that really recruits and retains really sharp people that want to teach for 30, 35, 40 years. And so they don't have the teacher shortage issues that we face, that many of our states face uh, here because they've gotten creative about, and they've kept their eye on the prize. What's the goal? You want all kids achieving at a high level. What's that going to take? It's going to take a tremendous amount of support. It's going to take some great teachers. Great teachers have huge impact on kids, uh, including teachers of color. Students of color will perform better if they have some teachers of color. And so we've got to keep that in mind as well. And I just feel like sometimes we are, we're not really focusing all of our decisions on what's best for kids and what they need in this society. It's a tough time to be a kid. So I got maximum empathy for kids. And, uh, and I think we really need to hear their voices. I remember uh, when I was a high school principal, 25 years ago, I sat down with groups of kids in the cafeteria. And I just asked them a simple question. I did this over and over and over. Where do you want to be in five years? What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a carpenter. I want to be a nurse. And they, they usually had an idea what they want to do. And then I'd ask the follow-up question. Why are you here? What do you mean? Why are you here in this cafeteria in Olivet High School right now? You, why aren't you on the bus going to the career center? I was in a county that had a career center. And, and they said, well, Mr. Campbell, you know, football starts at 3 and the bus doesn't get back from the career center till 3.30. I was like, huh, duly noted. So now with another group of kids. Hey, why, you know, same thing. Well, I want to be a nurse. Oh, okay, why, why, why are you here? Why are you having lunch in the cafeteria? You can't be on the, in the cafeteria at Olivet High School and on a school bus going to the career center at the same time. <laughs> it is mutually exclusive. So why are you here? And they're like, well, girls basketball starts at, at three and the bus doesn't go back till 3.30. Well, it didn't take real long to, you know, you hear that 10 or 15 times and you go meet with the coaches. Like, hey, coaches, do you know what these kids just told me? And I start to get them their names and say, do you know that he'd really like to be in the carpentry program? And, you know, she'd really like to be in this IT program. And, you know, but if you started practice at 3.30, then they wouldn't have to make this choice. Really? What kid in the right mind, if you know kids, you've been hanging around high schoolers long enough, they're not going to go to their coach and say, hey, coach, can I be 15 minutes late for practice every day? You don't ask your coach that. Why don't we as educators look at what we're doing really carefully in detail with a kid view and say, let's schedule this so they don't have to make that choice. Let's work it out as adults so they don't have to make that choice. They want to be a carpenter and dog on it. They should be on the bus, going to the career center, learning to be a carpenter. You know, we were a small school. I couldn't afford my own carpentry program. We so you pool your resources together as the county. It was a good program. 
but well, why do we making kids make all these inappropriate choices? That's another disruptive thought that I think is very important that oftentimes we as adults don't really look at things closely enough from the kid point of view and just sit down and ask them, ask them, they'll tell you. And a lot of times, you know, they can tell you some real, some really good stuff that can really help to shape the policy. By the way, we double our enrollment two years just by changing athletic schedules. And we changed the master schedule, moved it from a six period day to a seven period day so they could take more classes. Those are some disruptive ideas that I would turn to. Your whole answer around hands-on education and getting students involved in an active way in their education really resonated with me. I wrote a magazine column earlier this year for Gardner Media. And as you know, Dave, and as our audience knows, I spent 23 years running manufacturing companies as a chief executive, as a chief operating officer. And and that column was all about this. All of the things that made me a successful executive were things that got me in trouble in grade school. You know, Matthew can't sit still. He can't take direction. He talks too much. He doesn't apply himself. And and then you get into the world of work. And if, you know, if you can at least get things done, those things are actually virtual where you can, you know, you can't sit still, you have to keep moving, you, you want to continue to advocate for your team and, and get them accomplishing goals. And so it is interesting how in so many ways we can make the educational experience better for students like me. I used to joke that my two best friends in high school were named Art and Jim, because those were the only two classes where I could actually be active in my learning and everything else. We were just sitting in a classroom and, and listening to a teacher or, or uh, reading books and so on. So that, that answer really, really as I mentioned, resonated with me, Dave, and I appreciate you giving it. I want to talk now about collaborative work environments. Now, we have chatted about your organization's relationships with your local employers. We've talked about your relationships with uh, institutions of higher education, with community organizations, uh, and it really takes all of these institutions working in concert to fully prepare a student for what opportunities await them in the workforce. And we see schools across the United States increasing their investments in these types of partnerships. You've got tremendous experience here. From that experience, what are the keys that you believe are important in building successful collaborations with education partners and with industry partners? Great question. I'm going to start big picture and work down to finite. The top performing CT systems in the world, i.e. Switzerland, Singapore, are, and this is all Mark Tucker's research again, they really focus on the public-private partnership. So educators shouldn't be in a silo doing their thing, and business people shouldn't be in a silo doing their thing. And it was one, it's one of those characteristics, particularly that Switzerland has, where they're really working in concert for a common good. And so that's a big picture view is in in America, we don't do that as well. Uh, Sometimes uh, educators are pitted against business people and the opposite. And and so as far as now getting to finite, take that big picture, you know, it just a matter, we need to sit down and talk. And more importantly, we need to sit down and listen to each other. When I came here eight years ago, that was early in my list. I'm doing my listening tour, you know, a new superintendent coming in to a new community, start by a a listening tour. So meeting with community leaders, business leaders, educational leaders, all the local superintendents, local board members, just listening, asking the common questions about about KRISA, what do we do well? Where do we need to improve? And, And doing some community surveys. I remember surveying the community back in 2015, I just had a couple of questions, but did it a you know, professional survey. You know, what's your level of satisfaction that you have in your local high schools preparing kids for college? It was pretty good, 72%, pretty satisfied with how high schools prep kids for college. Another question was, well, how satisfied are you that uh, the high schools are preparing kids for work? 
48%. Ooh, 72 to 48. That's what our public was saying. It's the scientific objective survey. Well, then you better know that got, you know, my attention big time. Whoa, what are, you know, how can we improve what we're doing? We had career tech going, we still do. It's just a decentralized model. It's not well known. So we don't, we don't generate the interest. And so it's a lot of conversations. It was honestly more listening than talking about how are we perceived? What do you perceive are the strengths? What are we doing well? Now, where do we need to improve? And asking a lot of different people. And then what begins to unfold is an initiative and a gathering. And of course, that means committees. Well, not all committees go nowhere. This committee's going somewhere. And we've had several iterations in different chapters in this, in this four years we've been at it. And we've got you know a good three more years before we open the doors on a new career center, which is a wonderful thing. And then as soon as the doors open, we're going to be putting in the cycles of continuous improvement. So we're just constantly updating our curriculum. But if educators work in a silo and we just teach what we want to teach or what the state's curriculum, uh, career tech curriculum says, we may not be in tune with our local employers. And so we have advisory committees with every program and we've ramped those up and we'll continue to. We formed a public-private partnership with Southwest Michigan First, our, our local economic development uh, organization for Southwest Michigan, great organization. We formed a partnership with them in, in 2019 and, and their people had been, Jill Bland specifically, had been on our our design teams, and they'd had a healthy voice representing employers, had many employers too. You've really got to listen to these folks. They're going to end up employing some, so many of our kids. And then the beautiful thing is a lot of those kids, they start out working at, at a striker or at a Humphrey products. And, and then, you know, they grow in the company and you know what, they may start their own company. And that's a beautiful thing. So this really is the ticket to the middle class or, or higher, depending on a, on a student's uh, individual initiative, how much they want to risk. You know, do they really want to step out on their own? Do they want to be an electrician or do they want to own a construction company? There's different levels of risk there. And it's going to take different levels of skill, but it's about opening up those, those opportunities. So I think, I think really partnering with the business community and community leadership is essential. And I'm really proud of what we've done there. You always could do more. It's a fairly large area. And so there's, you know, there's always more people to reach out to, but we're seeking support, not just on the financial support. We got incredible donation, a hundred million dollar anonymous donation, you know, through the business community to build this career tech center. Well, that's, that's an incredible opportunity. We are beyond excited for that. And it, but it's, it's right in line with our planning back in 2019. We had businesses at the table. Well, if we're going to do a career center, I mean, that was the kind of the consensus of the room. We got to have a career center. This decentralized career tech model where different programs are in different high schools and different locations is not working well. And again, it's listening. That all happens when you do more listening than talking. And it happens, you know, as we talk, I love the way you sat your students down in, in the cafeteria and asked them honest questions and listen. When you sit industrial employers around a table and ask them what's important to them, and you listen, you know, we tell employers all the time, you know, don't expect to understand everything you need to know about education when you walk in the door. And I know a lot of a lot of educators that have confided in us, hey, you know, we're we're actually a little bit intimidated going into an employer's place of business because they live in a totally different world than we live in. And so we just tell them, check the agendas at the door, agree that you don't speak the same language, agree that you don't know everything about each other's organizations. I remember a meeting one time where I was talking incessantly about programmable logic controllers, which is the computers that we use in manufacturing. And I kept referring to PLCs and PLCs. And I got about 15 minutes into the discussion. And finally, one of the, uh, one of the educators said, what does this have to do with professional learning communities? And you know, we were literally talking totally different languages, but we figured that out. And, and it's okay to use words that maybe the other side doesn't 
use, or it's, it's okay to, to, you know, have conversations, ask questions about things you don't understand, because as you put it, when we do more listening and talking, that's when we come to some really, really beneficial and successful initiatives. And that's what this is all about. I want to talk now a little bit about, we're going to work in this whole supply and demand discussion. You referenced Adam Smith earlier in the discussion. When we think about the world of education, you know, sometimes educators, I think, will maybe make the mistake of planning for the future of their programs by looking at how much money they have in front of them, what are their resources today, and then building their programs around available funding rather than finding creative ways to meet the demand of students. It really is about supply and demand. There's a there's demand for students, there's demand of students in terms of career pathways. So here's a question for you. How do we go about finding those creative ways? What advice do you have for educators who are trying to fill open careers, but thinking about how they match demand for those careers with creative ways of meeting that as opposed to matching that demand just with the available funding? Yeah, creating uh, supply and demand on programs, we really have to look at that. And that's not something that public educators are really known for doing really well. You know, what programs should we have in a career center, right? Well, it's got to be linked to the local market. You certainly want to offer programs that are going to pay well. They're going to be available. But sometimes the debate in education is, well, I've got staff to teach this, and but kids aren't signing up. And it's tough. And again, it's like you got to always find the balance. You want a stable staff. You want a, a staff that's bought into the culture, that's bought into the vision. But you also got to, you know, I have a staff that's teaching the things that the economy needs. There's a balance uh, to be found there. And it, it, it is tricky because you want that staff buy-in. And when you go totally by supply and demand, you may be fluctuating the number of sections that you're offering. How many kids want to take a robotics class? Well, that may fluctuate from semester to semester. And if it creates a fluctuation in your staffing, then you get a reputation of being an employer that's constantly laying people off. And that's not the best way to recruit and retain outstanding teachers. And we're gonna be looking at hiring you know, some teachers, people who've gone into their professional career with knowing they wanted to teach. And then we're also gonna to try to recruit some out of the private sector who've learned an outstanding skill. There's robotics or welding or whatever it is. Have the great people skills to be able to connect with kids. And that might give us a little bit of flexibility to offer more sections or fewer sections by having a stable of people to draw from as the supply and demand. That's an important point. And then another related point is states really need to look at their systems of funding. Oftentimes in public education, I know it's the case in Michigan. I could go on and on and on for the, with that, but I won't. I'll, I'll save your audience that. But oftentimes we don't incentivize what we want. And if the economy is based on this 127 that I talked about earlier, where we need far more people getting earning skills certificates and associate degrees, why don't we incentivize that? And we just oftentimes don't. In Michigan's system, you know, we have this intermediate school district millage that I talked about earlier. And about 20 of the 56 ISDs don't have that millage. And so career tech in those counties, if they have it, is more expensive and the local districts have to pay more for it, that creates an economic disincentive for principals and counselors and superintendents to send kids to the career tech program because they got to pay for it out of their budgets. And career tech is really expensive. It's an obvious area that the state governments need to step in and fund at a much higher level. Michigan, you know, there's some funding, but it is nowhere near close to what the cost of career tech is. The federal government, they kick in some through the Perkins grants, and that helps. 
not dissing at all. We appreciate it, but it's not even close to the cost of career tech ed. And so we, I think really the big picture policymakers need to really focus on what do we want? How do we incentivize that? And how do we remove disincentives? Because right now there are disincentives in place. Michigan system of villages, we collect eight and a half million dollars a year as a county to help pay for career tech ed. That's a substantial amount of money. If we've got 2000 kids in the career tech center, we get eight and a half million. If we got 200 kids in the career tech center, I get eight and a half million. Well, if you think about that, it's a zero sum game and zero sum games are a wonderful way to stifle innovation. If if that's what you want to do, uh, we should be incentivizing innovation. We should be incentivizing the programs that lead to uh, good paying jobs for young people and for them to grow. So and you brought up some really, really great points in that last answer as well. You know, really thinking about your students and thinking about their futures. And I think you've got a unique opportunity to do that. You mentioned Southwest Michigan first. You mentioned the announcement that they had secured a $100 million anonymous gift. And I want to let that number sink in for our audience for just a moment. You don't hear those kinds of numbers in technical education uh, as often as maybe we would like, but certainly don't, don't hear those often. Even with all the amazing funding flowing into career tech ed, that number is an outlier in and of itself. And it's going to be used for the construction of a new world-class technical education center in Kalamazoo, Michigan. What can you tell our audience about this project? Oh my, how much time do you have? <laughs> so I've already hit on several elements, just not as directly. The most important thing is that this is going to be a great place for sophomores, juniors, and seniors to go to develop their skills. I've talked a lot about the career awareness and exploration, the helping the younger kids see what they can be. Hopefully these lead to, to smooth handoffs as kids get older and they, they start selecting. Hey, I want to go into information technology. I want to go into the health occupations. And then they'll you know, they can come to the career center that spend half their day there and half the day in their home high school. It's going to be a beautiful facility right off I-94. You won't be able to miss it. It's right in the center of the county. It couldn't be a better location. It's right in the middle of the industrial base of Kalamazoo County. There's hundreds of employers within a mile or two many of whom want to have work-based learning opportunities for kids. And that's really important. We have simply got to change the culture of high schools and get kids out into the real world. And that's where the internships come into play. And boy, do we need employers to step up and to help to provide those opportunities and be willing to mentor your kids. You know, the comprehensive high school, uh, you know, you talk about disruptive. The, the way to disrupt it, you know, you've got to look at it one child at a, at a time. But giving kids those opportunities to see what the real world is like and to give them hope. And then the skills, we can develop the skills in a good career tech center that's going to have a lot of different programs in it to suit their interests. And they'll all be marketable and they'll lead to, to middle class type wages. And it's going to be, like I said, in the center of the county, very visible. What it will communicate to people in Kalamazoo is career tech matters. Career tech ed is important because that's part of what we lack now. As when I talk about that survey data from a few years ago, I mean, people don't know about what we do now because it's decentralized. We don't have a career center that the economic developers, when they tour these companies and these site selection and review committees, they're touring a company that's thinking of locating in Kalamazoo or they're taking them around. You won't even have to get off the freeway. You can just point to this beautiful building. It says, And there's 1,500 kids a day in that building learning everything from robotics 
to auto service tech, learning supply chain. That's that's very appealing for future employers. So we really want to grow Kalamazoo County and really have it be an economic base. Everybody wins as communities grow and invest in education and invest, uh, the employers invest in their companies and, and grow them. The biggest thing holding the employers back now is the lack of talent. And so that we're really trying to meet that. And we're just so appreciative the business community and their support, and obviously the anonymous donors and their support to, to, to give us uh, something that we can all really take pride in that'll communicate this matters very loudly. It'll help us to recruit and retain outstanding teachers and outstanding teachers attract and develop outstanding kids and talent. And there's a massive teacher shortage going on. We were talking earlier about, you know, how do you become a top performer? Well, the, what the top performing nations have done, they built systems, HR systems, and that will recruit and retain really sharp people in, into teaching. Well, we've got to do that at the local level. And a career tech center is a big part of that. We've lost some of our, our best career tech teachers to other counties that have career centers. And they have four, you know, because they, it's just, you can create such a neat, that's such a cool culture in a career center. You know, you got 15, 20 different programs, but they're different, but they're all the same in a way. You're creating a work-based culture. It feels a little more like you're going to work than you're going to school. This building, you're not going to walk into just banks of lockers. Like you didn't in a typical school, you walk in, the first thing you see is a bunch of lockers, right? It, it's not going to look like that. It's going to look more like a workplace. It's going to be designed for innovation, designed to inspire innovation, designed to inspire collaboration. Those 21st century skills that employers say they need, and I know they're right, because I'm an employer, and we're looking every day to hire people with 21st century skills. Educators, we're employers too, and we want people that are creative. We want people that are communicative and collaborative and innovative. You know, it's character, and character is best taught by modeling. What do you model? As a parent, what are you modeling as an educator? What example are you showing? That's how kids learn. They're watching us as educators, as community members, as little league coaches. They're watching us. And that's a, the most powerful teacher. So I, you mentioned that character thing a few minutes ago. And I don't want to let that go because that's, that's one of the most powerful things that we can do as educators is be really good at role models for them and to model for them uh, the kinds of behaviors that will make them great employees. Absolutely. Yep. Honest and hardworking, setting that example. You talk about the importance of, of exhibiting character. When we talk about leadership, we say leaders get the behaviors that they exhibit, expect, and tolerate. And that exhibit part is so very important. It's hard to hold anybody to a standard that you're not willing to exhibit yourself. And you're certainly holding yourself to a high standard there in Kalamazoo with the addition of this Career Tech Center. It's going to be amazing. It, it gives me goosebumps to hear you describe it. It's going to be fun to watch this new facility go up. And in so many ways, you're creating the future and you'll be making history on the topic of history. Your background is in history. would be interested in knowing a little bit about how you feel that background in the world of history and the study of history, which, by the way, is pretty unique for somebody in a role like the one that you have. How does that fascination and that background influence the way that you do your work in your current position? Well, great question. I don't get asked that very often. So I went to the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, studied history with some great history profs. And I think more than anything else, what it taught me is to connect the dots, that nothing acts really in isolation with each other. It, it teaches you systems thinking, a game that I often think of as whack-a-mole. Everything's connected. You whack this mole and another one pops up. And history teaches you that. It teaches you the cause and effect of human behavior. 
causes you to look deeply at things to under, you know, look at the economics. I remember taking a historiography class and it, and it taught you to look at the history through an economic lens, through a diplomatic lens, through a military lens, through an intellectual lens, through a lens of faith and theology, all these different lenses to analyze something. And I think that has prepared me well to lead school systems, to look at things deeply, to listen deeply to not walk in assuming you know everything, but really but sitting down and uh, an old phrase that uh, I can't remember who first shared it with me, but God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason, I think makes some sense to me. Let's try to listen twice as much as we talk. And, and it's amazing what we can learn, particularly if we listen to kids, educators, teachers, you know, you, you listen to these folks that really pour their lives into kids and families. Think about insights into them and really listening to the, the business community and the challenges they face. You know, a lot of times uh, we misjudge the business communities as being all greedy. You know, many of the business leaders I've met there, they work so hard to create wonderful cultures for their employees and, and uh, you know, doing the best they can in a really tough global economy. And they, they like to pay them more. These are tough balances, and but it really comes down to to listening. So studying history, I'm always glad I, I majored in history and, and glad I taught it, glad I taught government, glad I taught econ, you know, because I just think it, it's helped me to connect dots. And I think it really gives you an interesting perspective on your role, connecting those dots, understanding how all these different pieces fit together. We've covered a tremendous amount of ground here talking about everything from public policy to construction, to career technical education, to what's important to employers and so on. And I think that, that that's certainly the ability to connect those dots between market spaces, between individuals uh, for the benefit of your students is, is one of your many gifts as the superintendent of KRISA. Two more questions as we wrap up our time today with Dave Campbell, who, as I mentioned, is the superintendent of the Kalamazoo RISA. The first one, and for the benefit of our audience, you and I found that we have a mutual love of the sport of sailing. You know, in my case, I grew up sailing really small scows on a lake in central Wisconsin. And then I raced as a crew sea scows on Pewaukee Lake, where you happen to grow up grow up by total coincidence, actually. I lived for the better part of a year on a sailboat on Lake Michigan, actually, and then uh, spent weekends on them for uh, years and years after that. I know you and your family have an incredible sailing history as well. You know, when we thought about, can, I wrote down connecting the dots on the history side, and it kind of led to my thinking about connecting the dots on a sailing race course, you know, from a windward mark to a leeward mark. I remember my days of sailing Olympic two and a half out on Pewaukee Lake, I think just two years after you moved on to some other things. So we just barely missed each other racing on that lake. So you, you and I share this lifelong love of sailing. And I would like for you to observe for our audience, how is sailing like leading a large RISA? What a great question. Balance. I'd say more than anything else, sailing is about balance. If you're heading too close to the wind, you're going to pinch and you're going to slow down. And if you head too far away from the wind, you're going to create stress in your rig and you're going to slow down. You're going to go fastest when you're in sync with the wind, when you found the right balance. And I think that really is the key to life is finding a balance. I, I love sailing. That's one of the reasons is it constantly reminds me, don't go too far to the left. Don't go too far to the right or port and starboard if you want to use those terms. That would be, I'd say, the, the number one learning that I think sailing has taught me. And I, I liked racing. I didn't love it. I loved sailing more than racing and really just kind of getting in sync with, with nature. And another great quote is, you can't control the wind, 
but you can adjust your sails, right? That's a, that's a famous one. You can't control the wind, but, but doggone it, we can adjust the sails. And you can sail safely and you can sail quickly, but you have to adjust. And sometimes you have to adjust real quickly when the wind changes real quickly. And, uh, and you learn that. And you also learn the consequences of your behavior. Because if you don't adjust your sails quickly and you get hit with a strong puff, you may just tip. If you don't, if you don't ease the main or head up into the wind a little bit quickly enough, you will learn the consequence of not paying attention. So it's, it's a wonderful sport or life as a hobby. You don't, you don't need to race to enjoy it. Great ideas. It's all about balance. It's all about adjusting as you go, recognizing that we can't control what happens to us, but we can control what we do about it, both in education and on a sailboat. I'll add one more, and that is having sailed for a wide variety of skippers. So for, for our audience, that the individual in the back of the boat with the tiller in his hand or her hand or the wheel controlling the direction of the boat. It's also all about having a great skipper. And there's a huge difference between a good skipper and an average skipper. And I would say that's true in education as well. Kalamazoo Risa has certainly found the right skipper for its future in the form of Dave Campbell. So um, we've really enjoyed our time together with you, Dave. We're going to ask you one final question. And it is the same question we ask all of our guests here on the Tech Ed Podcast. And that is if you could give one piece of advice to a high school sophomore as they consider their future pathway, what would that piece of advice be? One piece of advice. I would go with being kind and being honest and working hard. I guess that's three. I'm cheating there. But that was always the advice I'd give my graduating seniors every year. And if you're working hard, being honest and you're being kind, everything else in life will take care of itself. All your relationships, your employer employer relationship, your relationship with your family, with your neighbors, the better we can do at those core character traits, the better life will be. Be kind, be honest, and work hard. Great advice for a high school sophomore. And we thank you for that, Dave Campbell. Thank you also for just being a wonderful guest. So very thoughtful. You've got such an interesting background. Come at these questions from so many different angles that I know are going to be really, really beneficial to our audience as they think about the future of their program. So I just want to offer you a sincere thank you for spending time with us today on the Tech Ed Podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.